Welcome. This is the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hey guys, welcome to the Real Estate Investing Mastery Podcast. Hope you're doing well. I'm Joe McCall. I'm with a good new friend of mine, Adam Zach. And we're going to be talking about a unique program he is doing called Set Your Rent. And a lot of you guys maybe have seen some of the bigger hedge funds doing this, but Adam has found a way to do this for the smaller investor like you and me. And he's been doing it already successfully in his own market. So we're going to be talking about that. First thing though, I want to let you all know this Real Estate Investing Mastery podcast is brought to you by my book. A lot of you already have this. Some of you are like, I need to buy that. I keep on hearing Joe talk about it. I've not get, gotten it. You can't get this on Amazon. You can't even if you wanted to and you wanted to pay a lot of money because it's not there, but you can only get it at wlobook.com, wlobook.com. We're going to be talking a little bit about lease options today. And this is the book that got, this is exactly what I did to quit my job. It's one of the easiest deals to do where you get a property that doesn't have much equity, tie it up on a lease option, and then you sell or assign that lease option to a tenant buyer and you're done and out of the deal. And it's been working for a long, long time. It's an old strategy. I kind of coined the phrase wholesaling lease options. A lot of people call it lease option assignments or whatnot, but this is a real good book. In fact, I remember when I was first getting started, I bought a lot of different lease purchase courses. And one of the courses I bought uh, was from a good friend of mine named Todd Toback. And he called this stuff teamwork assignments. I've heard other people call it cooperative lease options. Other people even call it arbitrage lease options. So anyway, it's it's a uh, it's a very profitable strategy and it's a great way to flip deals. Cool? So you can get it for free. Just pay a little bit of shipping and handling at wlobook.com, wlobook.com. All right, cool. And Adam, Adam, how are you, man? I'm doing well. I have your book and also was a member of your of your course as well. So they've been they've That's been great. helpful. That's right. I remember that. Do you remember when you bought that book? Oh, that one would have probably been two years ago when I first found you. I mean, a lot of us are just, when you're looking to get started into something, there's a ton of free content. And then eventually, like you said, when just like you invested in someone else who was doing lease purchase assignments or however they called it, I basically did the same thing. Well, if I wanted to get into this, why not just seek out other people that are doing more than I am so that I can learn? Yeah. Well, good, 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 good. Now, Adam, I'm gonna I'm gonna guess you are not on the beach right now, and but that's why you're wearing a hat, wishing yes. you were on the beach. Yeah, this is a little bit of a unique day. So when you have a three year old and a one year old at home, you never really know what your day is. But luckily, now that I'm down to ten hours a week at my job, basically because of the real estate, I have this flexibility of now I'm working at home. It's actually in my in my son's room, so you can see my my one year old son over my over my shoulder here. And so it just, it's kind of get creative, but I am in Fargo, North Dakota. So it is, it is not quite beach weather, but we, we like to just close our eyes and pretend. You know, I'm wearing, I didn't even think about this. I'm wearing a Kauai, Hawaii <laughs> hat right now. It's one of my favorite hats. And of course I'm in St. Louis. So it's a little cold where you, we are, it's colder where you are right now, but you know, talk a little bit about your story. How'd you get started in real estate and when? Sure. It was the, the 2012 did an accidental house hack, had no idea 
that I was doing a house hack, didn't know what bigger pockets was, which was like kind of the first real estate investment, you know, game that I found, which wasn't until I got my third property that I actually figured out that bigger pockets existed. So basically the first one was nice because I bought it, just wanted me and my college buddies to kind of hang out and play and have fun. Then you realize, oh, they're paying my mortgage. Ooh, that's kind of fun. And I don't so, have to yeah, do talk, much. Explain what a house hack is. Sure. So the house hack was, yeah, I graduated from engineering and I was like, okay, I got, I'm making some money. Why not go out and buy a truck? Why not go buy a house? And of course the truck was a bad idea. The house turned out to be a good idea. One was a depreciating asset. The other one was an appreciating asset. So essentially bought it. It was a four bedroom, two bath townhome for 140,000. My mortgage on it back then in 2012, doing like an 80, 10, 10, which was 80% conventional financing, 10% as a second lien against the property that was a higher interest rate. And then 10% down that I put down. And so my all-in mortgage was like 900 bucks and I charged my buddies, three of them, you know, $350 a month in rent. So I was just living rent-free basically. And once you do that for three or four years, you realize, okay, well now my mortgage is 110,000. The property is worth 160 and I've been living rent-free for four years. I was like, man, there's gotta be something more to this. So that's kind of when I got the real estate bug. I, I wasn't very bright. I was just trying to extract as much fun out of life as possible. So this was the bar scene. This was beer pong on the dining room table. This was like, oh, you just get out of college. You're making some money. You can have a bunch of fun. And so then that's what kind of got me to the impetus before I then made the best decision to marry my wife. And then that's when I discovered personal development. And then that kind of flipped the switch again. Awesome. You know, I was just talking to my um, 12 year old daughter about college and not about the party stuff. In Jesus name. We were talking about house hacking. She wanted to buy, she brought this up. She said, I want to buy a house and just rent it out to my friends. And I thought, that's pretty cool. You know, and I've talked to them a little bit about that, but nothing serious yet. I mean, my oldest is 17, but what a great idea. I mean, I wish I would have thought of that back when I was, when you're single, like there's no way you can do it when you're married, right? Your wife wouldn't yep. let you rent a room in your house out probably. Against my wishes, she she wins that argument for, for good reason. Right. So, but anyway, what a, what a great thing to do for a single guy or a single lady, especially when you're in college to rent, buy a house. Um, it's so stinking easy for college students these days to get credit anyway. It's ridiculous, but like start yeah, saving up your pennies now for down payment, buy a house on campus, near campus and rent it out to your buddies. They can't get anything nicer and cheaper for 300, 400 bucks a month. That's right. And it, and if you can't do it, so like if they require you to live on campus the first year, even if it's the second year where you do sophomore, junior, senior year, and you can get, you know, maybe a parent or an uncle or someone to co-sign for you, if you can't quite get the income to do it, like I would imagine that your, you know, family members would look at that and be like, oh, well, so you're actually going to pay the mortgage. You're going to be living there. You're actually going to have eyes on it. And believe it or not, there's a lot of people that are looking to get into real estate. And so when somebody just happens to bring the opportunity to you, we're like, wow, this would be, this seems like a pretty easy way for me just to co-sign on something and do nothing and potentially help out my son or daughter along with maybe, you know, they get part of it too. Nice. And then after you're done with school, you can keep on renting the house out by the room. Um, and you know, it's funny, not funny, but serious. There's a lady I met in Ohio, who teaches a course about student housing. I forget her, Dixie, really cool lady. And she's in Springfield, Missouri, I think. But that's all she does is she rents out houses to college in college towns, but she gets the parents to co-sign all the leases. And she only does 12-month leases, right? And the parents, if there's any re massive repairs that need to be done, and or if there's late rents or whatever, the parents take care of it. The parents mm -hmm. pay it. So pretty cool. All right. So this was 2012. When did you when did you finish college? I finished in 2011 with my master's. Okay, very cool. And then what did you do then? Then it got a a little bit unique where 
we're like, okay, we want to potentially keep this one as a rental. And I, and I was kind of into the American dream of like, okay, now I'm engaged. My wife and I are looking at a property, got married. I'm like, okay, now we want our, our quote unquote forever home. So we were going to buy the five bedroom, three bath, 3000 square foot because we could afford it, you know, for no other good reason. They're like, oh, we're going to start a family. We're going to have a bunch of kids. And long story short, that home lasted us two years. And so, you know, we bought a, you know, a $300,000 house, but kept that one as a rental. Right and out so, of college? This was three years later. Sorry. Okay. Okay. So three years later in 2015 is then when we bought between my wife and I saved up, you know, 20% down, got our, our kind of our primary forever home that, that we wanted. So that was in 2015. So three years later, been living kind of rent free for three years and like, oh, this is kind of cool. Then my college buddies or then recent grads kind of moved on, got their jobs in teaching or nursing or whatever. And, and then it's kind of like, oh, I'm left in this house. Now, what do we do? And okay. so we decided to keep that one as a rental. But I, I really didn't like, now that I look back at it, I was like, man, I really didn't need that big of a house. Just because it was a kind of like a keeping up with the Joneses and you could afford it. So it was just nice. So we decided to keep that one as a rental, listed it way below market rent because we moved out in March. And the first people that went into it said, we'll take it because it was like $1,200 a month in rent and market rent was like $1,700. Didn't know any better. I was like, oh, if I could just cover the mortgage, that would be great. Wow. There was some ups and downs with that. That spring, they flooded the basement because they forgot to put the downspouts on. And this was like a Sunday night. My wife and I were like, okay, this is why we are never, ever doing real estate again. So it almost knocked us out of the game to now you know, having 26 properties bringing in, you know, X amount in, in rent. And now it's, you know, allowed me the financial freedom. It was this close to completely knocking me out of the game, just out of pure frustration. I have a similar story. <laughs> yeah. uh, my first property, my company transferred us. I worked for an engineering company in Kansas City. They transferred me out to California for a three-year assignment and uh, building, we were building the power plant out there. And 10 months into the job, they shut it down and sent everybody back to Kansas City. But I had rented my house out. I had two months left on the lease. We were back in Kansas City, had no place to live. And every single month, that tenant would call for something to, that was broken, that needed to be fixed. They were lent, late every month on their rent. And, and I, who got the late fees? By the way, if you guys didn't know this, you should think about this. The property management company keeps the late fees. All right. You don't get the late fees unless you discuss that with them in, in the future, right? Mm-hmm. And then I was so mad at the, the property management company. I just said, I'm just going to sell this property. And then, oh yeah, by the way, you have to pay us a commission if you sell it. Well, I'll just cancel my property management agreement. Well, there was still an extension even after the property management agreement expired. I was still tied to sell it through them for like a year or something ridiculous. Maybe it was six months, but I was like, never again, never owning rental real estate again. This isn't worth it. So uh, sorry, I'm, I'm making, I'm interrupting your story. No, it's, it's, it's a valid point because you know, it's, it's just a, a lot of people that want to get into real estate. Yes. It's can you know, can provide that fa- financial freedom, but just the old adage of persistent and consistent and not letting, you know, something go out. Yes. I could have been a lot smarter and found books, people like you, bigger pockets and, and would have known like, Oh, maybe check these things or do a walkthrough or an inspection just to kind of, you know, look at it. It was kind of like a, Oh, this is kind of cool. They're just paying me rent and away we go. So it's just a, just, I always like to hit the highs and the lows because the, the roller coaster ride that is this is, is fantastic. Although it's always trending up, which is nice. Okay. So, uh, how did you start in the, on this track of buying more properties? So then the next one was, okay, I'm going to just buy a, a, a regular rental that it's just, 
I'm finding it off the MLS. I'm going to buy it. I found a three-bedroom, two-bath that I thought I could convert from a three to a four-bedroom because it had the bonus room. So as my first property was turning over, I would sit in there. I would do open houses for the applicants. And I would say, oh, by the way, if you don't want this house, I'm closing on this other house that mm. happens to be a three-bedroom that I'm converting to a four-bedroom. And that's how I filled the second rental was basically by leveraging the fact that this was a super attractive property. And in fact, that rental property that I have nine years later and that same property that I bought now in 2016, so this would be my second true rental property, I'm doing the exact same thing this spring. I'm slowly trying to get all of these out of rentals and into lease options, but these two I've always kept as rentals for that entire time. And I'm doing the exact same thing where, well, if you don't like this one, why not check out this one? And so then I had a signed lease contingent upon me closing on the home before I closed on the home. All right. Nice. And what year that, is that? That was 2016. 2016. All right. And then then what? 2017, a buddy of mine said, hey, let's pool our resources together because every time you keep putting 15 or 20% down, you're like, man, I'm just out of money. I can only do that so long before my capital just runs out. And so like, well, what? I can't really do anything else. I don't have any money. So it's just like, oh, I guess I could just have to save. And then he was like, well, I want to do this. He kind of saw what I was doing and was like, let's let's form an LLC. Okay, great. He's got money. I got a little experience and we'll start knocking this down so we don't have to put so much into it. We bought a 1908 property that we thought we could put like 10 grand into it and make it look nice. <laughs> It was such a terrible, <laughs> terrible deal. That that got us like two windows to meet code. That didn't touch oh the kitchen. God. That didn't touch anything. And so we're like, oh my God, what what did we get into? It's almost like the HGTV gone wrong. So we're we're in this, you know, 1908 property that we still have today that's on a lease option. We ended up putting in way more money than what we expected to it. And that's where like, okay, this flipping thing or this rental thing like isn't for us. It took I don't know, like three months just to get in, in our state, you have to get a certificate of occupancy for it to be licensed. I know not all cities or states require a city inspection. So that city inspector was our worst enemy. It was always this outlet has to be grounded. This window has to be within three feet and of the it, floor. And they can't tell you all of that the first time they're there, right? Oh, There's man. always something new every time they come. Yep. And so we went through all of that and it was like, it took forever to get that. And then we finally got someone to rent it out who happened to be a handyman himself. And then slowly over the period of 2017 to 2020, he fixed up the property in exchange for kind of a reduced rent, which we were super happy about. I don't know the legalities of that. And I'm sure everyone would say like, you probably shouldn't do it. We actually ended up using him as our handyman for two years on all of our other rental property. That's a great idea. Oh, it, it turned out to be really well, but it was to that to date, we still own that property. I don't think we'll make any money on it. But again, it was just, we tried it and that was that was the next one. So yeah, then we kind of pivoted. interesting? Failure can be your biggest teacher, your best teacher sometimes, right? I mean, I look at things in my past, I've learned the most from my mistakes. But here's the thing, you don't, you don't really have, you don't get success unless you failed. And sometimes, many times, mm -hmm. you know, I was just listening to the guy on an interview uh, on the Mike Dillard podcast. And he's the guy who invented the, well, he didn't invent it, but he sold it, the uh, the gravity blanket, these heavy weighted blankets that everybody's talking about now. He had tried business after business after business and failed at all of them. And all of a sudden he was having a conversation with a sleep doctor because he was trying to design some pillow and he was, was going to throw away the idea. It was stupid. But uh, he just thought he already had an appointment with this sleep doctor. He was going to keep it anyway, just because he didn't want to be a jerk and cancel it. And she said one little thing about, um, well, you know, some of our clients, we give them 
we prescribe to them weighted blankets. And if you have, it's been scientifically proven, if you have a blanket that weighs 10% of your body weight, it'll reduce stress and anxiety and help you sleep better at night. And he about spit out his coffee and said, what? And then he went and he couldn't find, you couldn't order those blankets anywhere online. Um, and if he, and he did find one place, but it was like a website that doctors go to and it was built the website was built 20 years ago or whatever. So anyway, he went to Kickstarter and raised a million dollars in a couple of days and then did $5 million in like a week um, and then figured it, freaked out because he's had to figure out how he's going to make this blanket. Anyway, my point in that whole story is failure, 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 failure. And all of a sudden he hits on the big idea. The other thing I was thinking about was um, for rehabbing properties. How many investors do you know and do we all know who have failed miserably at rehabs and at least has one or two. For me, I, I've only done two rehabs and I failed miserably in both of those rehabs. I'm rehabbing one of my properties right now and I thought it would have cost about 20 grand and the bids came in at 40. I mean, just go figure. That's yep. just inevitable. It's going to happen, but don't don't quit. Don't ever, ever right. quit when you have these failures. Uh, it's interesting. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, it was it was kind of the, what can we learn from this? And I feel like each one we were doing, we were trying to pivot where it was, you know, okay, we, we didn't buy a property with much equity. So now the next one, we wanted to buy property with equity. So that's how we got a 1900 house. Oh, a ton of equity, right? The ARV is this. Well, it turns out if it's in crappy case, you know, we can't comp it with an ARV. You got to do like the 70% rule minus repairs. And, you know, in today's speak, we didn't know any of that. And so now we're like, okay, we're going to get out of that. We're just going to buy a property that already has tenants into it. And the property is going to be in good, good condition. So like a turnkey property. Okay, great. We did that on the next one. The bank required us to put 25% down and it worked out until the tenants had to move out. Then we kind of, you know, discovered like, oh, then we got to do the whole thing over again. But we started doing that more just because it was less work. It was a nice home. Tenants were into it, but the numbers were just like, man, it's uh, kind of iffy, right? Like we're, we're making money, but boy, we were putting on a lot of capital to kind of squeeze out a, a few beans out of this with the with the turnkey market. So that's what we did for a while there in 2018 before we got to our our were new all these deals in South Dakota area. Yeah, so they were all in it, literally in our backyard in uh in Grand Forks, North Dakota at the time from when where we were at. North Dakota, South Dakota. What's the difference? I'm just kidding. <laughs> it's just the Dakotas. They're just the, they're, I always get them mixed up, even though I think I think there's a petition to combine us into the Dakotas. <laughs> I think it got like 700 petitions, but never really actually made it into serious? any congressional hands. Yeah, we drove through um, South Dakota on our big three month RV trip. Where is um, Mount Rushmore and the and the black? What are they called? Yeah, the Black Hills down in Rapid City. I would recommend if you're going to drive through one of the Dakotas, don't drive through North Dakota. Drive through South Dakota. You'll you'll hit the Badlands. <laughs> you know, are, are maybe cool in North Dakota and more in in Medora on the western part of the state, but the Black Hills and seeing a little bit more in South Dakota, I would I would recommend. The Badlands were incredible. Mm -hmm. They're beautiful. And then we went into the Black Hills and we stayed at a KOA there. I I didn't know that South Dakota was that beautiful, and I've not it's driven phenomenal. up in North Dakota. It was North Dakota just like pretty flat or? Yep. Yeah. They, uh, the running joke is you can watch, watch your dog run away for a week. But it, it looks green on the map. It's not like <laughs> desert, is it? No, no. It's just, yeah, it's, it's pretty plain Jane. A lot of, a lot of farming and 
it doesn't go up and down with real estate, you're going to get 3% appreciation and you're not going to get two, you're not going to get four, you're not going to get 10. Besides the Bakken, which was the big oil you know, boom on yeah. western part of North Dakota, that was kind of its own economy and anomaly. But luckily, I, we just kind of been, oh, it's kind of just the Midwest where families stay here. You got a population growth of one or 2% and it's just pretty steady Eddie. That whole wet, that thing that was going on in Western North Dakota, is that, is that bubble kind of burst or is it still? Yeah. Between the, the, the oil prices, it, it, it kind of does ebbs and flows like 2012. It was huge. Then 2018, it came roaring back again. And then COVID basically slammed everything shut. And now it's, you know, kind of going at a, probably a modest pace. I think they're like the second biggest producer just behind Texas. Wow. All right. All right. So uh, what is this year now? 2017, you have three or four properties under your belt. Yep. So 2017, we did kind of the, the terrible flip. 2018, we started doing more turnkeys and trying to, you know, do that. And then 2019 is when we landed on our model that we do exclusively now, which is our set your rent model. Um, it it kind of had a version one and a version two. Version one was, hey, college kids, go pick out any home on the MLS. Hey, college can, kids. Yep. And you can pay the 1% rule. And we'll just buy that home for you because we were into the turnkey game there. But instead of buying existing inventory and then trying to fill them or hoping that the property had rentals, we just said, hey, group of four kids, if you see a $200,000 house, we'll rent it to you. We'll buy it, close on it and rent it to you for $2,000 a month if you sign a two-year contract. And to us, it was kind of like no vacancies. They already picked out the house, so they're going to like it. We probably have to do less stuff to it. And so that was version 1.0. So we called that set your rent where you just said, hey, here's how much I want to pay. And then we just said, oh, the 1% rule. And here's the purchase price. And we sent college kids out hunting for homes with real estate agents. Okay. And did that work? It did for the one or two years that they had it. And then it turns out, then we just had to rent them again. Uh, but we wouldn't get the same amount of rent, right? So yeah. if they picked a $200,000 house, $2,000 a month really looks good. Well, market rent was $1,400. So after the two years, it was like, uh, now we're kind of back to the same thing again. It was great. Allowed us to get a lot of cash flow for those two years. And I would recommend it if you're just trying to get into it. If you know someone that wants to rent and and you can do that, like basically you close on the door, you know, March 1st and they move in March 2nd. Like it's, it's kind of a cool thing. Couldn't you just rent it out to more college students by the room? You, you could, that would have been a smarter idea of, of how to do that to get more, to get more income. Hmm. So this is interesting because you told me when we talked before, another kind of way you stumbled on this is you found it kind of hard to, maybe you should phrase it better, but you had this idea of like, well, we do all this work to find the sellers. What if we found the buyers or the tenant buyers first? So talk a little yeah. bit about your, your thinking oh, about that. Sure. So that's that's when we were slowly coming upon the idea because as our rentals were coming up, we're like, what else can we do with these? Do we sell them? Do we just do normal rentals? And that's when the first person ever I heard about it was YouTube and it was Chris Crone because he's- yeah you know, he's flamboyant. He's, he's pretty, you know, in your face with Lamborghinis and different stuff. He's still got some good content, but it was like, Oh, what in the world is this thing called lease option? So we're like, Oh, we can do it. We can just have them sign one piece of paper. And this is a lease option. Not, not the way to do it. Right. So we're like, okay, let's stumble upon what this looks like. And that's when we found your course went through it and was like, okay, we're going to really get into what lease options mean, how to do them right, how to help them. And so me and a different business partner started going through your course and we started contacting for sale 
sold by owners and it, things were slowly generating. Then my business partner, a different one at the time, had a life event and he's like, you know what? I can't do this anymore. And I was like, okay, well, I could hire some VAs, do all this stuff because I know it works. But I was like, but given what I'm seeing and kind of like this unique thing, instead of finding motivated for sale by owner candidates, what if we just found already motivated tenant buyers and we just did with money with money that that we kind of did the 10 per that we kind of did the 1% rule. But then because they're tenant buyers, they they don't want to move out. They want that home. So then that kind of solved the fact that you know, they would sign a two-year lease and leave with college kids. These tenant buyers would sign a two-year lease and then buy the property. And now I didn't have to, you know, basically do anything. So that was really the, between kind of your, you know, program along with what we were seeing locally and trying to do is really then how we pivoted to the last thing was just, you know what, we couldn't really find as motivated people or it was a little bit harder, but boy, when you say, you know, home available as a rent to owner contract for deed, your phone starts blowing up. There's, there's so many people doing it or that, that want, that can't get a home because of credit, there was just way more of those. Cause it, I believe in your course, you're like, well, if you get a property under contract, that's the hard part, you know, finding a for sale by owner, you go finding the tenant buyer. That's, that's the easy part. So I was like, oh, well, if that's the easy part and there's a higher demand there, let's just lean into that a little bit. And we're by no means an expert. We've done, you know, maybe 20 of them. So not nowhere near like the home partners of America and Divi homes who are doing this on like thousands and thousands of homes. I didn't know that they existed until like 2020. We just kind of thought we were doing something new kind of off of a, off of a spin off of what you guys were doing. Now, when you, when you first told me about this, you sent me an email and I thought, man, that's really interesting. But I had done something similar before. So I was at first really skeptical back in 08, 2007, 2008, I did a similar thing and I found out, man, it's way easier to find tenant buyers. So why don't I find the tenant buyers that got money to put down and then I'll go buy the house for them. But I did a couple things wrong. Number one, I wasn't putting enough money down into the house. That's number one. And number two, I didn't have enough cash flow. I had no margin for error, zero. So when the property values tanked or when the tenants missed a month rent, I had zero savings because um, I was used, I was only putting 5% down on these homes. And when the mortgage is that high, you don't have any cash flow in there. And then any money that I collected from the tenant buyer went towards that 5% to buy, to buy the house. And then the banks have these limits where you can only buy a certain number of homes. So anyway, that turned into, I, I did make some money on some of those deals, but not a lot. But you do, you have a different approach. And, and I like the way you kind of work it a little bit because you are putting more money down and you're getting some of the money from the tenant buyer, but you're also getting some private capital, mm-hmm. private money, right? Uh, so talk a little bit about how you structure these deals because this is this is interesting. Sure. Yeah. So I'll I'll dive into it. And and again, I'll preface this that we are we are very much in the learning phase. This is like, oh, that d- doesn't work. And nobody tells you as an entrepreneur that you can't do something until, you know, legally you you learn otherwise, or that somebody's like, hey, you just can't do that. So we're just like, okay, how can we make this work for everyone? So now people are finding us and every home that we've bought has been a hundred percent word of mouth from an agent, from a banker or a past customer. And so that's that's a, a good reputation that we li- that we like to have. But essentially somebody finds us like, hey, I can't get a bank loan because of poor credit, wh- whatever the situation is, was recently you know divorced or um, you know most common is I'm an entrepreneur and the bank looks at me weird. I don't have my two years of taxes showing my self-employment, but in fact, I make $200,000 a year. I just write off $200,000 a year because I don't want to pay taxes on anything. So when the bank looks at how much your adjusted gross income is, it shows zero. But really, if you looked at it, you're like, oh, 
well, they're literally writing off food, hotels, their mortgage, like everything. Like I'm no, I'm no tax accountant, but you know, they're writing everything off. So like, okay, I have the money. So that's where they're finding us like, Hey, if I put down five grand or 10% or 20%, you know, what does that look like for me? And this is like, Oh, okay. Well now, now that's a much less risk from our perspective. If somebody's putting down one month's security deposit of $1,500, that really doesn't do much at all. But if somebody's coming in with 40 grand, I was like, there, there is a lot of the, the market can do a lot and we have a lot more wiggle room. So in an example of, let's say a $200,000 house that they bring in, let's say 10%. So they're bringing in 20 grand. How we'll ideally structure that is we'll get $160,000 from an in-house portfolio loan to our LLC, which is different than the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, because those are you know conventional loans. They're in your personal name. So we're buying homes within our LLCs with in-house credit union funds. So if you go to Bank of America, a Wells Fargo, and you say, hey, I want a mortgage, or you go to a mortgage broker, nine times out of 10, they're just going to say, okay, we're going to shop your stuff around and whoever can give you the best interest rates. And they are following federally guided you know, documentation of what's your debt to income ratio. And they can only charge you so much fees and they're going to lock you in at a certain interest rate. It's, it's very formalized. Now the bank can have overlays where Fannie Mae says you need a debt to income ratio of like, let's say 43%. The bank can have an overlay that says, well, we really don't want you going above 38. But Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have their guidelines that if you just go through that, like you can't deviate it by law, the registered mortgage loan originator has to follow those laws. And that's where like, oh, you can't get more than 10 of those, but those are your best rate, your best terms. If you can get that fantastic. Like go, go ahead and go that route. The other one is you got a credit union. And by the way, a credit union is what a, what a great philosophy, right? They collect a thousand people money at $10,000. So now they have $100,000 that they're paying you 0.01% interest on a money market rate. And then they're lending it out at 5%. So all of a sudden, they're just creating $20,000 a month in cash flow for securely holding your money, but then going out and lending it anyways. And so I was like, Oh, okay, that's fantastic. What what a great concept. Can we kind of get in on that style of a bank? So we're kind of playing middleman between a landlord and a bank where we're just leveraging the fact that we have an 800 credit score and the in-house portfolio credit union is willing to give me and my business partner a loan because we look really good on paper. The tenant buyer isn't. So that's why they're paying a higher interest rate while we're taking on the risk because the credit union, if the tenant buyer doesn't make the payment, doesn't want to foreclose on them. They'll just say, hey, investor, figure this out. And that's our job, right? If the tenant buyer doesn't pay, that's our responsibility. So we're taking on that risk and we're also getting then the reward from that. Well, the so, bank's protected too because you're putting what percent down as a down payment? Yeah, we're putting either 20% down or 25%. So of that $200,000 house, we'll either have a hundred and sixty dollars or $150,000 loan. And from their perspective, and they can assign the rents, they're doing personal guarantees. You're about as locked in as you can with those in-house portfolio loans, almost just like a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. And so they're, they're protected as well, I would agree. So now let's say that we have to come up with the remaining 20 to 30 grand of capital. Because the tenant buyer came in with 20, we get a loan for 150. So now there's still 30 grand there. What we started doing is doing private money where we just went to someone who's like, I don't trust the stock market. If I put it in a five-year CD, it's currently at 1.34%. What if we gave you, you know, a modest return on your money? And by the way, you're helping a tenant buyer get into a home. So it's kind of twofold where they're getting 
you know, 8%, 10% interest only on their money while they're helping someone get into a home. And now we can do this at scale because we're not putting in our own, all of the funds ourselves. And now that there's a lot of inherent risks with that, but boy, it, it it's really helped us accelerate. Okay. And this house you use as an example is a $200,000 house, right? So you're getting, you're putting 20% down. Yep. And you're getting maybe half of that from a tenant buyer, the other half from a private investor. Yep. That $200,000 house, what is it worth? Are you are you paying full market value for these houses? As long as you find somebody with a tenant buyer with good down payment money, you'll Ooh. buy anything for them? Or do you have to like, you have to get it at a, at a discount? Sure. So when we now screen the tenants, so we use LTS. Thank you for the recommendation, by the way, in your course. Like what a great thing. They they We just say, hey, for 50 bucks, go have them do all the work. They'll tell you if they're getting evicted, what their income is, how they verify it, yeah. and they'll give you a recommended or not recommended. Fantastic. If anybody's what, curious, it's LTS, Landlord Tenant Services. I think if you Google Landlord Tenant Services, their website is ltservices.us. But I've been using them for tenant screening for years and years and years. Oh, thank, thank you so much for that. So that was in your course you know, that we picked up and it was just taking golden nuggets of that. So we say, okay, go through all that we are personally not of the opinion that we're trying to set anyone up for failure. So we use the general three to one ratio. If you make $6,000 a month, you can afford a $2,000 per month payment. And we're generally following that rule. So based on their income that's proven or that we can justify by looking back at their bank statements or they're self-employed and be like, okay, I get what you're doing here. You're making six grand a month. If you make three grand a month, okay, you only approve for a $100,000 house. Because it's basically the 1% rule where we're saying, you know, don't exceed three times your monthly income for what your mortgage payment should be. So like 33% of your overall debt specific to your house to make sure that we don't overextend someone. Because of course, if they make $6,000 a month and they're making a $5,000 per month mortgage payment, that is a recipe for disaster. So that that's the general criteria of like, okay, so you're approved for a $200,000 house. Your, let's just say your payment, whether we're doing a lease option or a contract for deed is just say all in for budgeting purposes, you know, between either your monthly payment or your principal insurance taxes and insurance, if you do a contract for deed is all in at roughly $2,000 a month. And so when we sell the price, there's there's two things I'll go with this, is we can sell them the price exactly at 200,000 if we can do a seller credit. And the seller credit, so this is the next thing that really game changed it. So with Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, my understanding is you cannot ask for more than 3% for them to contribute to closing costs. Like there's just a federal guideline. Like you can't just say, oh, if I buy a $200,000 house, can you cover 10%? And so then all of a sudden you're coming in with like, you're actually getting paid, you know, to, to move into a home. In-house portfolio loans, I'm just still shocked that nobody's figured this out. They do not care what that seller credit is. Really? So we've been testing the water and it's and it's getting embarrassing. So that same $200,000 house, we could ask for no credits. Our closing costs would be like three grand, you know, for title, um, you know, maybe some prepays and a couple other things with a commercial loan. And so we could ask for $3,000 back and then we essentially have to come in straight with 40 grand if you're doing truly 20%, if we ask for three grand seller credit. So what we started doing is like, well, what if we bought the home, just as in this example, just from a seller credit standpoint, for 220,000 and we asked for a $23,000 seller credit. Now to us, the lender is gonna say, okay, I'll, I'll lend you 80% of the purchase price or the appraised value. So assuming that it appraises out for that number, so you can't get too crazy. Okay, now you have to come in, instead of 40 grand, you have to come in with $44,000 because that's 20% of 220,000. Okay, so 44,000 minus the seller credit of 23,000 now we have to come in with $21,000 
to close that home. Oh, and by the way, the tenant buyer was bringing 10%, which is 20 grand. So now all of a sudden, we don't even have to go out to private money because we used a seller credit trick to basically close on the home for a thousand bucks. And these in-house portfolio loans, lenders will allow that. They will. Uh, it is just absolutely shocking. Like I asked them, I'm like, you know what I'm doing here, right? And they go, as long as it's 80% of the purchase price or the appraised value, they the check the box. They the check the box. So of course, if we offered 300,000 with a $100,000 seller credit, I hope it doesn't appraise out for 300,000, right? It's a $200,000 house. But what's amazing is, is you tell an appraiser that I bought this home for 220,000, shockingly, they'll appraise it for $220,000. Yeah. All right. So this is interesting now. You've got, so it's worth 200. You're buying it for 220. What are you selling it to the tenant buyer for? How, and how much time do you give the tenant buyer to buy it? Sure. So in this case, I mean, if we truly did like this egregious 220, we would sell it to them for 210,000. So technically we're getting it for 200. We would say, okay, to cover some closing costs, a little bit of appreciation, you're going to buy this for 210,000. And that's so basically, so if they turned around in one month and bought it back from us, you know, we can actually still make some money. Because if we bought it at 200 and sold at 200, we'd basically just eat all the closing costs and we'd be out of money. So basically, okay, as long as you pay for the closing costs and a little bit of our effort, time and risk putting into this, you can refinance in one month, a year or three years. So we say 210,000 and then every month, if it's a if it's a lease option, they're getting, you know, a certain amount back that's building up to them as, as a credit or if it's a contract for deed, it's truly like a amortization schedule where it's principal and interest. So we, if it's a, if it's a contract for deed, we, we give them the entire amortization schedule. So if they wanted to, they could stay at an eight and a half percent interest rate for 25 years. Wouldn't recommend that, but you know, we're never going to kick someone out, you know, cause it's just money cash flowing. We're paying off the commercial loan. They're paying us money and we're just making a spread. However, if in two months they want to refinance, good for them and they got their taxes back and they can go. And well, the then lease- where, where do you make the money then if they refinance in a year or less? So if they, so it's the 200 versus the 210. So there's a little bit there. Yeah. And then every single month, because our mortgage on a $160,000 loan at a 4% interest rate is only $1,200 and they're paying, you know, let's say $1,900 a month in rent. So there's, and maybe if we have to pay back some private money lenders, but essentially I would say on a deal, we're maybe making on average $500 a month, you know, just between our mortgage and what they're paying. And assuming that we're covering taxes, insurance, and on the lease options, we use, you know, a similar strategy. It's like, okay, we're going to get a homeowner's warranty, you know, oftentimes, otherwise it's like, unless it's an insurance claim, you are taking on this responsibility because they picked out the home, they paid for the inspection, they've agreed to all these terms. They're, we want you to be a homeowner, act like a homeowner. If That's you're, the other big, huge advantage of this. You don't need a property manager Yep. and you don't need to worry about maintenance and, and repairs, mm-hmm. right? Because they're responsible and, for them. Yep. And so the the tough part that I haven't got a good answer on that we've tried to talk to seven different attorneys and they'll give me seven different answers. And if you go to a different state or across state lines or city lines, you'll get even more answers is, okay, what can you put as responsibilities on a lease option? Some people says, you know, it's, it's anything, you know, not to exceed $500 or some say if it's anything structural or plumbing or electrical, you have to take that on as a landowner. So if a city inspector is is required on that property, more often than not, instead of doing a lease option, we'll do an agreement for deed or a land contract because then it's truly transferred. They can file it at the county and they are the homeowner. Even though the title stays in our name, they are the homeowner. There's no you know, rental inspection. There's none of that. And so if we 
fear that there's any concern there about whether or not who is responsible for it. And there's different tax advantages one way. If I'm selling on a lease option, I still get to depreciate the asset. I still get you know the interest only when I sell it, it's, it's, it triggers a sale. And so I no longer get depreciation. And now it's interest as income as opposed to an investment. So there's at least it, from my perspective. Would you say there's greater tax advantages for you selling it as a lease option, right? Yep. And it's better for them buying it as a contract for deed. So everyone coming to us like, hey, I want to do contract for deed. And I say, great, the down payment's got to be higher because our risk is worse. So in North Dakota, if I evict someone, it's probably and now during COVID, it's you know, who knows how long, but let's say the standard is normally four to six weeks. And a foreclosure in North Dakota is at least six months. And so I need compensation that they're equally invested in this if I'm going to potentially have to eat this property for six to 12 months. And so that's where we change the down payment. Maybe this lease option is five grand. Maybe the contract for deed is 30 grand because we we have not and will not foreclose on someone, at least it, it, unless they absolutely refuse to pay it and like need to go out. But luckily, we've never had to do that. Yeah. And, and a lot of times, too, just doing a cash for keys thing can mm. solve so many of those problems when it comes yep. to so when you when you do it, you do a contract for deed. So this title stays in your name, but you don't get to because it's a contract for deed, you don't get to write off that property anymore, do you? Correct. So it's basically since we bought it and sold it literally on the same day, because that's how we do it. We'll structure it out so that they notarize the contract for deed, the same tie that we're signing the settlement statement. We get ours filed at the county first, then they can file it at the county. It's their choice. And there's there's maybe two things there. If they file it it's potentially a refinance if they yeah, don't file it. Which makes it easier for them to get financing later on down the road, right? If it's a refinance. Yeah, so I, I guess, I, so I interviewed um, a broker on our podcast because we started a new thing of trying to educate these tenant buyers. Because I didn't think that there was, I th- number one, thought there was a bunch of crooks out there trying to take advantage of tenant buyers where they just don't know that they're getting into a lease option or a contract for deed, or they think they're getting into one where really it's just a rental agreement with a verbal handshake saying, oh yeah, we got an option agreement with you. And so- we started this at the beginning of the year, similar to when I was you know, leaving the job, was, okay, let's educate them so that this really is a win-win. Let's not hide any of this stuff. Let's truly say, hey, is a lease option good for you or should you just wait a year and get a bank loan? Should you rent right now because you don't have a down payment? So we, we're trying to dispel you know, all of that. And so in one of those interviews, North Dakota has something unique. It's called the first-time homebuyers you know, act and they'll assist with your down payment, but only if it's a new purchase. And so if it's a refinance, it doesn't count because they're technically a homeowner. But in general, depending on how it works out, I, I've seen it go both ways, but at least for North Dakota, for our specific broker, they're like, oh, end buyer, tenant buyer, I would recommend that you don't, if you know, and you trust the company who's buying a home for you, because if you don't file it at the county, you know, someone could take advantage of you as well. Like just from a, Hey, you don't, you don't show any title of this. I'm just going to go sell it to someone else type deal. So that's probably a long answer to a, to a short question. Okay. That's fine. I get it though. And so you explain, dive deeper into the kind of numbers and the cash flow and how you make your profit at the end of the day. So just so I'm clear, you, you're, you're, you're getting principal pay down. So basically the tenant or the buyer is paying your mortgage down, you're yep. building principal. As if you are doing a lease option, you get to the benefit, the tax benefits of writing off depreciation. Mm-hmm. And then you get the monthly cash flow spread. Yep. And on average on one of these properties, what is your average monthly spread? So if it's a property under a hundred thousand, it's probably three hundred dollars a month. If it's between a hundred and two hundred thousand, it's probably five hundred. And if it's the largest, the highest property that we bought is a three hundred fifty thousand dollars house, which was about fourteen hundred dollars a month. 
that okay. that is our spread. That's pretty good. Now, with these in-house portfolio loans, are you hitting into are you hitting any limits of like okay, you can't you only can do 10 or 20 or whatever? So here's the fun part. There is no regulations on that. Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, those are your 10. And I think we went commercial too early. I should have put more in my own personal name before we did these because I could have got a 3% interest rate instead of paying a commercial loan at four and a half. It, and that is just hindsight. You're, you can always do better. But essentially, we have, a, what is it, 24 loans now and we, with maybe seven different commercial loan lenders. And then what I'm hoping to do eventually is just refinance into a really large portfolio loan, get like a 70% loan to value. And now just have a line of credit that we can start buying these homes all cash and then reinvesting them and going back to my portfolio loan lender and just saying, hey, can we add this into it? Because right now, every time we buy a new property, so the next one that somebody wants to buy for us is Illinois. I was like, oh, we got to go call up every single portfolio loan lender, give them the whole spiel and be like, this is what we're trying to do. Will you do it? No, 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 maybe, no, 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 maybe, yes. And it's like, okay, great. And you can finally find someone who's actually understands, oh, I understand what you're trying to do. And they don't just look at you like sideways, like you got three heads because it, it's, 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 it's tough, but my business partner is really good at that. And, every, and to date, every single city that we've been in, we've been able to find a portfolio loan lender, except for in Florida so far. Florida seems to be a little bit unique right now. So this is interesting. You're doing this, you're starting to grow and expand into other states. Why do that? Why not just stay in South Dakota or North Dakota? Yeah, it's really as people refer people to us. Like as I participate in different masterminds or there's entrepreneurs like, hey, I know a guy who knows the guy who can buy a house for you if you're an entrepreneur. And then it's like, oh, I, it's, it's like, I trust them because they came from a referral. It's like, Hey, my cousin, Joe, who runs a construction company wants a home. I'm like, Oh, character over credit. I could basically care less what you look like on paper. Like I know Joe's a stand up guy. I'm pretty much willing to buy you a house right now. And then, so I like that because it's really, we're investing in the person, not so much the property, but I would, I would say that we've missed the boat on truly being able to scale this just in our backyard. Cause Divi Homes, Home Partners, nobody's in North Dakota and we really should be owning that. But we've been doing kind of like the, I think it's, I think it's fear where my partner and I both working W2 jobs for the last, you know, two and a half years. And now it's like, okay, this thing is legit. Now, finally in 2021, we're both cutting the ties and we're going at this full steam. Yeah. Nice. I have a student coaching student who lives in New York. I'm not sure where, but close to New York city. And he was trying to do lease options and New York's just ridiculous. It's it's tough. Same with California, very liberal and very anti-landlord, right? Well, anyway, he was having a hard time finding the sellers first, and then the sellers and the buyers both have to have an attorney and all that. So he decided to go the realtor route, get his license, and he's found it's way easier to find the tenant buyers first. Mm -hmm. And he's using some companies similar to Home Partners to go and so he's finding as an agent these properties. Well, anyway. He was just telling me yesterday that uh, signs have been working really, really incredibly well for him. Like he will put uh, one for every one sign he puts, he'll get 20 leads for every one lead that he gets from a Craigslist ad or something like that. And so he's just been putting signs out and uh, he's working with a lot of good clients. And, you know, he's doing the thing where you get the phone calls and you, you take a lot of calls to find that one person that's got a lot of money down and understands you know, what's going on, who the, the small business owner, entrepreneur who needs a loan and he's doing well with it. It's just really starting to get some traction. But, uh, you know, that's something I would just encourage you to think about. This is the old, boring 
signs that you can get in trouble with <laughs> if you don't do it right, you know, but they work really, really well. And I know people in bigger pockets love bandit signs, right? So yeah. you should tell everybody on bigger pockets that I told you to do a bunch of bandit signs <laughs> in your neighborhood. <laughs> You'll become popular really quick. Yeah, that's a kind of an inside joke if you've ever been on bigger pockets. There's certain things that people just can't stand on bigger pockets. And I love bigger pockets, it's a great resource. One of them is bandit signs. All right, anyway, let's talk about like, I want to ask you two more questions, kind of regards to raising capital. What are you doing? How are you finding private money? Uh, that's for, yeah, go ahead and talk about that just real quick. Sure. So we start first started off by giving away equity. We would form LLCs with individuals and be like, okay, to collectively to lower this down payment on whatever this remaining spread is, we'll share a percent equity depending on how much money everybody contributed. So if we needed 20 grand to close on a property, if they brought, you know, 15 of it and we brought five, we'd say, okay, well, we both get 50 50 because we found the deal, they brought in more capital and we started sharing equity. Then we're like, I really don't like giving away equity and forming these new LLCs, private money lending, where somebody's just like, hey, I'll just give you 20 grand if you give me $200 a month for the next four years. That, sign me up. What, what, a, what an easy way of doing it. And so that's been friends, family, and other real estate investors. My understanding is that getting them as a second position on the mortgage is the best way of doing that to make sure making sure it's secure. It, you know, between us, it's as long as they agree to it and you're helping them put their money to work and everybody pays everybody, like nothing's gonna go wrong. But I could see how that could fall out like a like a house of cards if somebody's like, Oh yeah, sure, just give me 20 grand and I'll pay you 200 dollars a month. And then they can't. And now there's not an asset that has enough equity to basically just fire sale everything. So we've built up enough reserves that we can just have an emergency, you know, uh, fund to, you know, pay off second positions, but we're still trying to leverage that just because if I can leverage 4% for 80% of it, and then 10% for the other 20, my effective rate is let's say 5%. And that still works in this model. As long as we're bringing in zero cash now, now we can scale a lot faster. Which is one of the big mistakes I made is I didn't have that cash reserve back mm. then, right? And that's so important because when things go wrong and they could and they will, are you going to be prepared to to cover some some vacancies, to pay back some private lenders who may want their money back early? What are you going to do? I want to ask you some questions about your cash flow. So you've got 20-something properties now, you said? Yep. And so this is, you're getting enough cash flow from these deals that you and your business partner can quit your jobs or what, where are you at just from a personal question perspective? Sure. Yeah. So I, I pulled it up. So we have, we have a, a running Google sheet just so I could talk from it. So we have personal properties that each of us own. And some of them we've had to put in our own personal name that we've still done lease options for. And then we have the rest of them closed within the LLC. So we collectively between the two of us have 26 properties and they bring in rent of close to 40 grand per month. And so then once you take out like, you know, principal insurance, taxes, insurance, all of that stuff, that's roughly enough for let's say 12 grand a month, 12 to 15 grand a month, depending on how things go, because now you don't have that crazy CapEx or maintenance. We still do want a couple of those old rentals and which is why we're trying to get the heck out of Dodge because we just see how these new ones are crushing the old model of, you know, just a performance basis. And so with that, we're kind of like, you know what, that's, that's pretty close to completely replacing our incomes and is enough so that if we put in more time to this and we double that in the next couple of years, okay, now that, you know, 12 to 15 grand turns into 24 or 30 and we can keep, you know, growing it from there. Or if it's just a lifestyle design, we're like, you know what, 
we don't want this to get any bigger than 30 properties and we're just going to let them come as they go. But we have, or at least me personally, have way bigger appetite. So I want to grow this thing big. Nice. And you're living below your means, which is awesome. (laughs) Super smart. And you've got the reserves. It just reminded me of a book that I read when I was getting started called Buy Low, Rent Smart, Sell High. Have you heard of that book? I have not. That's a great title. You can still buy it on Amazon. I don't know if the guys who wrote it are even in the business anymore, but buy low, rent smart, sell high. And the basic strategy is you you go buy properties at 85, 90 cents on the dollar from realtors on the MLS, whatever. And then you rent them smart. You buy them low, but not crazy ridiculous. It, normal discounts that you should expect to get. You rent them smart to tenant buyers on lease options and then you sell them high. And then you you know just keep on doing that over and over again. But the cool thing about that book is they give a uh, real simple plan where you could have over, you can get over a million dollars in equity in, I don't remember the number of years, seven, eight, 10 years, just doing like one deal a year. Or maybe it's one, de- starting with one deal a year and then two deals a year and then three deals a year. So by by year 10, you're doing like five deals a year, but you're slowly mm-hmm. building up to that. And so it's nothing big and overwhelming, but it's a lot. It sure beats investing uh, your money in the stock market. Like if you're trying to just put away 10% of your income, it's going to take you 30 years to get a million dollars in assets or whatever, right? But yeah, it's cra- that- yeah, it's crazy the velocity at which something happens. So it's like, oh, you had one property in 2012. Then, we, then I had like two in 2015. Then it was three in 2017. And then it was like six. And then it was, you know, 12 and now it's like 26. So it's like yeah. all it just the, the exponential growth of, okay, now we're closing about a property a month. Like how, how cool from our wildest dreams was, oh, if we could just get a property a year, we'd be happy. That's cool. And you know, your numbers too, which I didn't, which I love that you're doing that, right? Like, you know, your numbers, you're tracking it and you've got reserves. So, but you know, what if the tenant, I know somebody's asking like, well, what if the tenant buyer doesn't buy the house? right? What are you going to do then? What if values start, you know, we start going into another recession or values start dropping again. So what are, what are some of your contingencies for that? Sure. I would say if they want out of it, I would say, okay, do you want to just literally walk away and, you know, have this be kind of a, a part where you break this contract and you have no you know intentions whatsoever of trying to make this somewhat reasonable. And if their answer is yes, that is a tough person to work with. Luckily, we've never got into someone, but if that's the situation, it's like, okay, it's the eviction, it's whatever it is, you go through all of that. Like, I I would much rather want to work with someone because what I would rather say is like, okay, well, what can you afford? If we miss a payment, can we tack it on three months later? And do you have a plan of doing this? Okay, if that's not the case, can we do some sort of, you know, different structuring of the program? Or do you have someone that can fill your spot in this? Or can we just sell it and split the profits depending on what kind of equity that you have into the home? Like, let's let's go through those options first, but it truly could be they're just out of it. And if that's the case, then it's like, okay, what do we redo then? Is it fix it up and sell it? Is it find another tenant buyer? Is it rent it? We have not had a single one where somebody has, you know, not exercised their their option or they haven't had the choice to sell it, but we're really new. I, you know, I imagine, I, I never know what the national statistics are on lease option, like fulfillment. You probably do, Joe. Well, it just depends on on how you do business, right? Like if you're thorough and pre-screen them, you're going to have a higher, much higher success rate than most people who just take the first one who has enough money. I've even heard some gurus say, I hope the tenant buyer doesn't buy the home because then I can get somebody else in there, get more cash flow and get another big fat down payment, mm-hmm. which is, I think is not is not right. I would, I would agree. Financially, it's best for you if you can do that as the investor, but just from a overall life philosophy where I would 
the whole goal is we're helping create homeowners. Yeah, like yeah. That that is the mission, and that's what we want to do. And so I would say, if prices drop, I would advise them to say, please do not at the lowest point sell your property. Like this is the exact like COVID situation. March, April, stocks just completely dropped. The last thing you as a tenant buyer would want to do is just say, you know what? I just want to sell this home. Now I get that every situation is different, but if you can somehow work out something and just say, okay, maybe you were planning on buying this in 2020 and COVID happened. Nobody could have predicted that. But now let's wait till 2021 and look what home prices have done over the last year. Like just just hang in there a while or two years or three years so that with time and appreciation and as you're building up credits, like eventually you'll get on the right side of this. It's just, It would be the same thing as a mortgage that if you put three and a half percent down and all of a sudden they drop 10%, you could do a strategic foreclosure and walk away. But why not hang on for four years if you wanted to and potentially not have the bankruptcy on your thing? And now the, the same properties that were in Colorado or Florida are now you know worth two times what they p- potentially were when it dropped. If that tenant buyer, that contract for deed buyer can't get a mortgage in one or two years, you're not going to evict them and kick them out, right? Absolutely not. So right. we've, we've had multiple of those where they're just like, hey, I didn't pretend that COVID was happening. You didn't expect that. We just said, how about we just do a re-extension, keep everything the same. How does that sound? They just say, sounds great. And that works out for us because we're not in the business of trying to get our capital back to redeploy it and do something. Strictly, it's just, I mean, it's cash flow for us. And as long as they're happy and we're making money, like one year, five years, 30 years, you know, it's it's just, if they're the homeowner and it's, you know, no problem for us, it's just this little, you know, income that comes into the bank account every single month that you don't have to do any work on. And then um, if they just say, you know what, they lose a job, they get a divorce, they move, what do you do then? So this would be talking hypothetically because it hasn't happened to us. But if they just say, hey, I'm out of this, I would probably go back to that same thing of like, well, if you're just gone and you're out and you don't want an eviction, you don't want anything. You're, you just said, hey, the keys are on the table. Have fun. I would say, OK, good luck. And I, and then from there, I'd be like, OK, well, we still own the property and the title. If it's a lease option, you know, that's pretty easy because they just failed to exercise their option. We have the title. There's not much clouding that. If it's a contract for deed, I would go and see if they filed it at the county. If there is, then it's like, OK, I need you to sign this release of you know this agreement so that if we choose to do this again or sell it, there's not something clouding the title. Yeah, very good. And then you just find another tenant buyer for the house, right? Yeah. In I, I would say that that would probably be our default, but at some point we might just say, you know, this property or this person didn't work out, just fire sale it. Cause our new thing is we want the tenant buyers to pick the home as opposed to having a home that we then have a bunch of tenant buyers. Right. The second way attracts way more people though. When you put a, like you say, when you put a sign or you put a property on Facebook or Craigslist, way more leads than if you're like, who are these group of people called set your rent that says I can go pick a home and do a rent to own like that, that doesn't sound right. And then that's more of the home partners of America style philosophy that we're getting into. Yeah. Well, that's smart. And then, um, so you have enough equity in the house where you could sell it. Yep. And, and, and that's where I like the, the heads I win tails. I break even like if they move all out and we just said agent for a 5% listing fee, fire sale, this thing. And if we just break even, okay, it, we lost our time. It was a bad deal, but I see very low situations unless that tenant buyer, the contract for deed or the end buyer, whoever it was really did a number on the property that we would actually be upside down on something considering how much money we put into it, how much we're leveraged, how much they were forced to put into it over a time period yeah. is I would guess that we would break even maybe we lose some, but 
that's that's the that's the general philosophy that we like is the heads I win, tails we break even. All right, good, good. All right, so you're in North Dakota and uh, you are starting to do this nationwide. How can we help you? What uh, if somebody's interested in maybe partnering with you on some of these deals, maybe lending money on some of the deals, or bringing you tenant buyers, or you know what? How can people reach you and get a hold of you? Yeah, I would love for people to poke holes in our strategies because I don't pretend to know it all. Uh, so if someone's like, hey, I think you're doing this wrong or like, hey, I really like this. Here's a way that you can improve it. Like what what a great way. I would love the feedback if this was any value to you, like share the same thing and, and maybe it can help us. But then we started the second one is running little pilot cities in Wisconsin, Florida, and then entertaining the idea of someone reached out to us in New York. They're like, hey, if you just give me everything that you know and we prove it here in this city, we thought about the idea of like franchising it of like, you know, now instead of Adam and John, my business partner buying homes across the United States and trying to find those local lenders, what if somebody in Florida who already had the connection just did it for Florida? And so that's really the next step is private money lenders. If they want to, they can reach out. My guess is that's probably not the listeners and, and honestly not a, not a huge need for us unless somebody's like, hey, if you can just give me, you know, X amount percent on my money and it's interest only, you know, great, feel free to do so. But really interested in those that are like, hey, I think this is how your model can improve, or I think that this is a good fit because I have a ton of tenant buyers in my backyard that I just can't, you know, get a home because the market's too hot in. Good. All right. So how can people reach you? The easiest way is through our website, which is setyourrent.com. We have an investors page. Otherwise, just a simple email at homes at setyourrent.com is is the best. All right. Setyourrent.com and homes at setyourrent.com. You got it, Joe. All right. You know, this has been good, Adam. I'm glad to see that you're you're taking this idea that I had 12, 13 years ago, 14 years ago and doing it the right way. (laughs) You know what I mean? That's awesome. Um, And I love this too, because, you know, we all see what these hedge funds are doing and thinking, oh man, I could could never do that. Or like, how on earth are they doing that and, and doing it profitably? And the little guy can do it also you know, in a certain they absolutely way. can. Yeah. Uh, and, and the last thing is, so we are, we got accepted into a, an ex, or the last round of an accelerator program. So kind of like Y Combinator, but this one's called Generator. And we're interviewing for that tomorrow to basically say like, Hey, if we went and tried to do this venture capitalist, like the Divi homes who raised $500 million, and now they got a team of 90 people trying to do this across the United States. Like we're, we're potentially on the verge of depending on how things go tomorrow, which would be February 25th of 2021, of seeing if this is like truly a, they believe in us and and this is like some capital infusion from venture capitalists to go to go a lot larger. So it might huh. they might just say no, but we're on the third round, so we're excited to see what that what that could bring. Awesome. All right, guys, Adam Zach, give him a nice big round of applause. Thank Good you job. very much, Joe, for helping me. I I was just looking at your reviews and how many like two hundred and seventy some testimonials. My videos on there. You know, same thing with the podcast. Like, just keep doing what you're doing, man. This is fantastic. Thank you. I appreciate it. Setyourrent.com, email homes at setyourrent.com. And uh, you know, I appreciate that too. If you want to, if you've gotten any value out of this podcast, out of any videos, any content that I've done, I'd appreciate a review. And uh, I've got this cool tool that you can do. Where'd my phone go? Here it is. If you go to reviewjoe.net, reviewjoe.net from your cell phone, It'll redirect you to a page, looks like this. I know you can't see it. If you just want to leave me a nice video review, I'd really appreciate it. But the cool thing about this is after you leave a review, I have a special surprise for you. Um, You'll get a book 
that I wrote called Flipping Houses, Making Extra Money Flipping Houses While on Vacation. I don't know why we chose a long name like that, but I wrote that book uh, with a friend of mine, Jason, after I got back from our big RV trip. But uh, you get the free book and a video that accompanied the book, and then you get an all-day Saturday workshop I did talking about this strategy, Wholesaling Lease Options. And I did that course uh, seminar in Colorado Springs. So go to Review Joe. Is that what I said? ReviewJoe.net, I think. ReviewJoe.net. And do it from your phone because it'll ask you for a little video selfie testimonial thing right there. And I'll give you a free book in the videos. And uh, I really, really appreciate it. But uh, all right, Adam, thank you, man. I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's been an absolute pleasure. All right. We'll see you guys all later. Bye-bye, everybody. Take care.